Over the next couple of Sundays, few Sundays, I gather that you're going to be looking at the fruits of the Spirit. And the first fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be looking at today is love. And those of you who have been here for the last couple of Sundays will remember that Ian contextualized this in Galatians uh, chapter 5. And he highlighted the situation in Galatians. It wasn't very pleasant. The church had problems. There were two camps. And he talked about the rumble in the jungle that I'm sure some of you will remember. Uh, I want to say I don't, but that would be a lie. And he, he talked about people being in the red corner and in the green corner, um, blue corner, doesn't matter which. But there were two camps. And the situation was in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite, bite and devour... Sorry, let me get that right. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So they were at one another's throats. There were the Judaizers and the Antinomenians. Really, the Judaizers were Christians from a Jewish background who believed that you had to be circumcised, become a Jew, in effect, before becoming a Christian. The Antinomians had come, they were largely Gentiles, they had no Jewish background, they didn't believe in any of that sort of thing, but they went to the other extreme and thought, right, we don't have to keep the law because we've been saved by grace. So there was this tension. And John Stott, who died just this week, great leader of our evangelical leader of the church, died having celebrated his 90th birthday on the 27th of April, he said this, The Christian does not depend on the law as a way of salvation, but he or she obeys it as a code of conduct. So if you and I are Christians, we are Christians not because of keeping the law, because we couldn't do that, because we're sinners, We've been saved by grace, but we've been saved by grace in order to serve God and keep his law. We are bound to obey his law as a code of conduct. Christ himself made that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees tried to narrow what the law said, but Christ said, but I say unto you, and he developed it uh, more fully. And so Paul, uh, Paul, in his uh, letter to the Galatians, says, look, get a grip. Instead of being at these two extremes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then these, these uh, desires of the flesh are listed here, and he goes on to say in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the Christian is called to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. It's as if we as Christians are like trees, and the fruit flows from us just as the apples grow on the apple tree or the pears on the pear tree and so on. And of course, uh, we've looked at that. That's the context in Galatians. 
But being an Irishman, I want to take you somewhere different uh, to look at love. I want us to look, and that's why we read 1 Corinthians uh, 13, this great chapter on love, which was read for us just before I began to speak. And the situation in Corinth isn't much different. Because the Christians in Corinth aren't getting on all that well either. I appeal to you, brothers, says Paul, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions. Where the church is, the devil is there to tempt Christians to disagree and fall out, usually about little things that are not important. These people were all agreed on the truth of the gospel. It was the outworking of it. And we have to be very careful to follow the scriptural way so that tensions do not arise and develop. So here Paul writes to his friends in Corinth. It could well have been his friends in Galatia. could well have been his friends in Rome. Because as somebody has said, the New Testament, and think about this, the New Testament could be two-thirds shorter if it wasn't Christians falling out with each other. And Paul is constantly dealing with these issues. Here, the church at Corinth, Corinth was a great city. It was a beautiful city. The word apparently, I don't know any uh, Greek, but the word Corinthos in Greek means an ornament. It was a beautiful place, uh, noted for its education and for its sports. It was the best and biggest known port in the world at that time. And, but it was also a den of iniquity. Someone has said it was a seaman's paradise, a drunkard's heaven, and a virtuous woman's hell. Such was Corinth. Paul came on a second missionary journey, and according to Acts 18, he spent 18 months there preaching and teaching. And many people were converted from various backgrounds. But of course, because of their conversion and their outworking of their Christian life, problems arose in this fledgling church. And he, Paul wrote to them to deal with some of these problems uh, from Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Strife and division, as I said, were threatening the church. Some very arrogant people were throwing their weight around. There was sexual misconduct. And there was the abuse of spiritual gifts. All in all, a general misunderstanding of basic Christian teaching. Paul has dealt with some of these problems earlier on, and now he comes to this famous chapter, one of the best-known chapters in Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And he writes to restore some balance and challenge them to be more effective witnesses in their situation for Christ. So, we come then to love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Before we go into the detail of this, it's important to talk about the word love, a word that's been devalued greatly in our English language. All you need is love, sang the Beatles when I had hair on my head. And uh, so on. And you see this word love. Because we just have the one word for love. The Greeks were a bit more clever. 
they had four words for love because there are different types of love if you think about it. There was the word eros, meaning physical or sexual love. The love whenever a man and woman or boy and girl meet and their heart goes bumpity bumpity bump, but there's some chemistry that draws them together. Now clearly Paul is not calling us all to love one another in that sense. There is a storge, which is the word for family love. The love that naturally flows from a parent to a child and relatives and so on. Maybe not always relatives, but you know what I mean. And then there was philia, which was a, a warm affection for people. And we have, we, we, some of us have experienced all these types. But that warm affection, for example, uh, the word was used for Jesus' relationship to Lazarus when they said to him, you know, the one whom you love has died. It was a warm, affectionate Christian love. But the fourth word is the word agape, which the New Testament appropriated for almost for a meaning of its own. And the essential difference between it and the other three is that the first three essentially involve the heart. But agape involves the mind and the will as well. Our Christian love is not just a love for people we like. It's It goes, as we shall see as we go through this, and you know I'm sure, it's a much deeper love than these fluffy, flowery words that are used today. You know, will William kiss Kate on the, uh, on the, on the balcony of Buckingham Palace? Will he do it twice? How marvellous! How daring! But you know, we saw Charles do that 20 odd years ago. You know, so anyway, without going down that road. But that's a sort of a background, a, a snapshot of what we're coming from this word love. Because they say, I'm not pretending to be a Greek scholar, I'm just telling you bits and pieces that I've read. But I think it helps to clarify in our minds the, the word love. And there are three paragraphs in this uh, chapter, and I would like to look at them uh, with you now, uh, just under three simple headings. And the first is the supremacy of love. And uh, there were many able, talented people in the church at Corinth, leaders in various forms of society and so on, and many of them had very strong egos. They thought they were right. And Paul puts it in perspective here. Let's, Let's look at these first three verses. The supremacy of love. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, even faith to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have love, I gain nothing. Just think about that. First of all, you could have great eloquence. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have the ability to stir up a crowd, to arouse passions, to charm the birds of the trees, use whatever expression you want, and if I can do it in several languages, 
but have not love. I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Resounding gongs and clanging cymbals both make plenty of noise, but no harmony. Plenty of noise, but no harmony. Oratory may command admiration, but only love can touch the heart. Think about that. Oratory may command admiration, but only love can touch the heart. The best speech of earth or heaven without love is only noise. So great eloquence doesn't count unless there's love. Deep knowledge. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I'm a real whiz kid. If I know the answer to everything. Think about it. Prophecy. If I can interpret the will of God. Mysteries. If I can explain the secret purposes of God. Knowledge. Understand all there is to know about God's revealed truth. Without love, they are nothing. Love is the grace that makes these gifts fruitful. Love is the grace that makes these gifts fruitful. If I have great eloquence, deep knowledge, great faith, faith that can move mountains, What would we give for faith that can move mountains? But faith that can move mountains. Passionate faith that isn't passionate, isn't compassionate. Passionate faith that isn't compassionate is cold. If you think about it. Because compassion is pity plus action. The good Samaritan was not just passionate about the boy lying in the road. He was compassionate. He did something about it. And you see, it goes on here and it says this about great faith. If I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Not only great eloquence, deep knowledge, great faith, wide charity. If if I give all I possess to the poor, if I give away all I have, it says in this version, yes, on the face of it, that looks good. But it can be done for the wrong motives. It can be done to ease conscience. It can be done to improve social standing so that people will think more of you. It can be done almost to buy your way into heaven, as it were. Charity without love leads to pride. Charity without love leads to pride. And then, as if that's not all, there is consuming zeal. If I surrender my body to the flames, yes, to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Even this can be done for the wrong motives. 
the desire to occupy center stage. And it wasn't uncommon in uh, pagan religions around Corinth at that time. It, It seems rather out of the way for us in our culture today. But there were people who were letting themselves be burned for the wrong motives. So here we have this brilliant life with all its eloquence, with its deep knowledge, its great faith, its white charity and its consuming zeal. What a powerful thing love must be if it reduces what on the face of it is a brilliant life to nothing. The importance of love, the supremacy of love. But then in verses 4 to 7, Paul goes on to talk about the qualities of love. Now test yourself as I test myself against this. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy. Let's go through them one by one. And you mark yourself. See how you are. Patient means slow to take offence. Patient with other people. Long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. Are you short-tempered? Well, by the grace of the God, on the power of the Holy Spirit, because remember, we're not doing this in our own strength, we, we have to ask the Holy Spirit, if we're short-tempered, to make us long-tempered. If wronged, not to exact revenge. When I was young enough to be playing football or rugby or something like that, and I was tripped up, I have to confess, I wasn't long-tempered. I'll get that boy when the ref's not looking. You know, but do you know what that feeling is? Because this this is all practical stuff from Paul to his friends. Kind, there are 15 of them, so better not be too long. Kind means benevolent, given to active kindness and service to others. Does not envy. Not jealous of other people's success. Isn't that hard to do sometimes? Doesn't begrudge someone having what they have, even if we haven't got it. Does not boast. Always a temptation to boast. Does not praise his own success. And the most talented people, these people that Paul has referred to in the first bit, with all their brilliant eloquence and all that sort of stuff, they've got to remember that any talent that they've got, and you and I have got to remember that any talent that you have or I have or any gift has been given to us by God. And therefore, we are not to boast about it. We're to use it in God's service, but not to boast about it. Someone has said, love is not a windbag. It doesn't have a trumpet. It doesn't trumpet its own success. Not proud. Not arrogant. Are you ever tempted to be arrogant or superior? Inflated with pride? Now there are things it's right to be proud of in a right way. Of course there are. Proud of your family, proud of whatever, and so on. But not in, a, not in an ungodly way. 
No airs or graces. Not big-headed. Not rude. Not unmannerly. What are you like in shops? What are you like in the queue in Tesco's on a Friday night when you get a really duff assistant and they're taking about a fortnight to put every item through the uh, checkout. Is there one here? No? <laughs> right. But you know what I mean. I'm obviously exaggerating the point. But what are we like in situations like that? Because we should be the epitome of kindness and goodness. I saw somebody on Friday thanking the guy in the toilets in March and Spencer's where he was cleaning the floor. Thanks for keeping that neat and tidy. And the guy was all chuffed. I don't know if the person's a Christian or not, but, you know, this is the practical stuff that Paul, you know, this has all come from the fact that these people are at each other's throats as Ian's been talking about the last couple of Sundays. And Paul's saying, now, come on. This is what it's all about. Not self-seeking. Not a stickler for our own rights. Not always me first. And content to leave things in God's hands. Then it goes on. Not easily angered. That means not touchy or resentful. Never flies into a temper. Seems to be a lot about tempers here. And I can see why. Because I can see somebody smiling when I'm talking about it. And I'm the same. William Barclay has said this. The, master, the man who can master his own temper can master anything. Now, I'm not sure that's completely true, but you know, I know what he's getting at. So, uh, but we're not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Takes no account of the evil done to him. If somebody does you a bad turn, The natural response is to take account of it and harbour a grudge. The Christian response of the spirit-filled person is to take no account of the evil done to him, nor harbour a grudge. An angry spirit blocks the way to blessing. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Never glad to hear of somebody else's failure. Did you hear about your man? Do you know? Almost with a wee glint in your eye of pleasure that it happened to him and not to you. And now you feel a wee bit superior. This is what Paul's saying. And can I just tell you, I just happen to be speaking about this. But I was challenged by the truth of this, I hope, as you are. So I'm not coming from a pinnacle of perfection here at all. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. These are the qualities of love. In the right sense of the word, can I ask you, what's your love life like as a Christian? I ask myself that question. In the mirror of God's word. Ian was talking last week about 
the word being an x-ray machine, a mirror, and so on. And the mirror of God's word. Then finally, you'll be glad to know, we have in verses 8 to 13, the permanence of love. The permanence of love. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the partial will pass away. Love never fails. That means it never stumbles, it never collapses, it never folds under pressure. It never falls out of the race. In our imperfect, uh, sin-tainted uh, sin creation, there is decay. Flowers grow and wither and fade. Humans grow and wither and fade. But love never decays. Love is permanent. Other things will pass away. Prophecies will cease. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will cease. These are temporary gifts and will be rendered irrelevant in the perfection of heaven. Because we're in heaven, we won't need prophecy, etc. They're only important from an earthly perspective. And Paul now contrasts the earthly perspective we have with the heavenly perspective we have in the future. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect passes away. He gives a couple examples. A child. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned as a child. And when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Yes, there should be spiritual growth as physical growth. And then he says, talks about a mirror. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now you and I have good mirrors today. They show up the wrinkles all too clearly when we look in them. For some of us. But the mirrors that Paul was talking about were brass mirrors. They were almost like looking at a brass plate and seeing, you know, a... A lesser image. And so the contrast is much greater in Paul's time than in our time. Now, uh, because things will become much clearer when we get to heaven. And now these three remain. Faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. And let's think about that. Now we live by faith. We live by faith. And we hope, we have a hope for everlasting life. Hope for the Christian is something that's certain, but the timing is uncertain. That's why we talk about hope. There's a difference between Christian hope and just somebody hoping it'll be all right. We have the hope of heaven. The certainty, uh, the thing that we're not sure about is the timing. But when in heaven, faith and hope will not be needed. Because we'll be in God's presence. We won't need faith. We'll see him. And we won't need hope. Because we're there. 
Heaven will be a community characterized by love. How do we know that? Well, uh, 1 John 4 and 16 says, God is love. God is love. What can we learn from all this? Paul is effectively calling on his friends, be it in Corinth, as it is here, or in Galatia, as you were doing last week, to remember their calling. Remember your calling. Stop squabbling. Members of the church. Remember John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc., etc., the supreme example of love God giving his son and the son responding and going to die a criminal's death on the cross for you and me how ridiculous Galatians how ridiculous Corinthians how ridiculous Rotherhamites or whatever you're called in the light of God's love to be squabbling about petty things. It's a nonsense, Paul is saying. They should be a community of love within the church, characterized by the qualities outlined above. And when you and I radiate the love of Christ, the community around will know. They said of the church at Antioch, see how these Christians love one another. There's a story told of two ladies who were visiting a friend in a nursing home. And this nursing home was surrounded by a big high hedge. And they were sitting there by half four in the afternoon when suddenly they began to smell this perfume very strongly. And they said, what's that? Where's that come from? And the lady said, the lady they were visiting said, Oh, there's a perfume factory up the road. And every afternoon at half four, when the workers get out and walk down the road, you can smell the perfume. Because they were in the perfume uh, all day, they couldn't help exude it when they came out. So when you and I are in this church praising God, we're singing, Thine be the glory at the start. Ah, toi la gloire, O ressuscité, the French, the French say, I always think it sounds more dramatic in French. Uh, uh, the great hymn of praise. We're going to sing, unless the thing has been changed, in Christ alone at the end. A great old hymn followed by a great new one. Surely, we should be going out like the workers in the perfume factory. Exuding love to all around us. That's not easy. And I'm not saying it is. But that's our standard. That's what we should be calling the Holy Spirit to enable us to do. As the hymn writer wrote, Love of God, eternal love, shed thy love through me. Nothing less than Calvary's love would I ask of thee. Fill me, flood me, overflow me 
love of God, eternal love, shed thy love through me. And who should we love? Everybody. Jesus' standard was, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's why it was important earlier on to remember the different types of word and love. Because if you and I are going to love our enemies, it involves the mind and our will. And it has to train the heart to go in that direction as well. Whereas the other forms of love, the heart is drawn and it's easier. So love, joy, peace. So we've started with love today. That's a tall order. And if we think that's bad, there are eight more to follow. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Well, God, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it's an eternal word, that it's ever relevant. And what Paul had to say to his friends in Galatia and in Corinth is just as, irre- just as relevant to us today in this church. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will apply this word to our hearts. And our prayer is that all of us, both the preacher standing here and people sitting in the pews, not only will be challenged to be more like Jesus in our loving attitude, but we will be enabled by your Holy Spirit to do so in many practical ways this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.